Hi, Rebecca Polly here, and I want to tell you about a place where the word quit does not exist, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. For more than half a century, St. Jude has welcomed families from around the world and is committed to leading the way the world understands, treats, and defeats childhood cancer and other life-threatening diseases. This holiday season, join me in helping the kids of St. Jude. Give thanks for the healthy kids in your life and give a gift that could last a lifetime. Donate now at stjude.org or give wherever you see the St. Jude logo. Well, for one, how long is this Iger era even going to be? Because he's not like the announcement was kind of like he's back, but he's basically back to oversee a different transition (laughs) than a transition that is different from the one he previously oversaw, which everyone has mutually agreed did not work out very well. So the new Iger era, even from the jump is a big question mark because it's like, oh, he's, he's in for a year or two and then he's going to pass off to somebody else. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Aria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition since 1920. And in today's episode, we are going to be recapping the entire year 2022 at the box office and for theatrical exhibition at large. And because it's a special occasion here in our New Year's episode, we've got a full house with all our co-hosts with us today. Rebecca Pauly, Deputy Editor at Box Office Pro, Sean Robbins, Chief Analyst at Box Office Pro, and Russ Fisher, the Editorial Director at Box Office Studios, the division of our company that provides editorial services for movie theaters. So we are almost done with 2022 as we record this. I feel like everyone's just kind of uh, slowly marked, like it's a final slog till we get through to the end of the year. From a box office perspective, Sean, how do you think the numbers are going to stack up by the time, you know, everything's settled and we get everything in? It looks like we'll end up close to seven and a half billion. That's give or take a little bit. Maybe if Puss in Boots can break out a little bit more or the Whitney Houston movie, that might get you an extra hundred million here or there. But that looks like about where things will finish by New Year's. How does that stack up against what you thought potentially we could be looking at like this time last year? It's going to be below. I think where things looked to be last year and a big part of that is due to one or two movies that were delayed, in some cases pushed into 2023 but also one or two movies that underperformed, something like Lightyear this summer that fell very far short of expectations. That accounts for a huge chunk. I think, you know, this time a year ago, we were talking about hopes of hitting $8 billion domestically. So to get fairly close, I think under the circumstances is, you know, more of a positive than a negative, but there are still some kinks that need to be worked out and going into next year. And But the flip side of that is, you know, on a per-movie basis, and I'm sure we'll be talking about this a lot more in the episode that the movies that did come out, the movies that did stay on the schedule, a lot of them did hit expectations, if not overperform in some cases. Well, I want to bring up a data point that our colleagues at the National Association of Theater Owners put out on Twitter that I think best exemplifies how to think about this year at the theatrical box office domestically. According to NATO, the number of movies released on over 2,000 screens as of mid-December was 67 And you compare that to 105 in 2019, that's only 63% 
of the number of movies that are available to audiences at over 2,000 screens. If we look at that box office from those movies as of mid-December of this year, in 2019, those 105 movies combined for $9.3 billion. In 2022, those 67 titles, $5.97 billion. That's a big drop-off. But if we look at the average box office per title from those movies, it's pretty much the same, guys. We have an average box office of $89 million for each movie released over 2,000 screens in 2019. That number in 2022 is $89.2 million. If anything, it's better on an average basis. I think what you're talking about, Sean, is one of the biggest stories when we talk about the year as a whole, just the number of titles that weren't available to cinemas or moviegoers at a wide level, creating fewer titles, fewer options, and fewer diversity at a marketplace that needs anything but that. There are no original IPs in the top 10 this year. It's all Marvel franchises. I mean, I I feel like just for myself, from looking down at the list of of what's come out in this last year, it wasn't so great in terms of those mid-range titles, which is really kind of uh, working against everyone's goal of getting different demographics back into theaters. And it seems like those mid-range movies in a good year, and even in this year, if you look at titles like Everything Everywhere All at Once or RRR, those are the movies that often move the needle. You know, they're the ones that don't only drive a specific demographic back into the theaters, but they help drive theatrical overall because they kind of lift the entire ecosystem in a way. And they give it something that, you know, it's nice when a Marvel movie performs really well. Obviously, we need them to perform right now for the sake of the business overall. But a movie like Everything Everywhere All at Once is one of those things that is kind of like, oh, no, movies are really cool. Like, this is neat. You know, even if the movie's not for you, and it's certainly not for a lot of people, and that's fine. But there's just something, it adds an aura, it adds an X factor that is the wonderful part about the movies. And without, you know, the top line tent poles are so rigorously like tested and calibrated to be four quadrant appeal that sometimes it doesn't work. If you look at like Black Adam, but those mid-level, yeah, yeah, exactly. But those Mm. mid-level titles, or, you know, you see it in horror as well. There's a lot of genre, you know, it's a big part of the reason that horror is still huge. There's that X factor. There's an element of surprise that is unique to the movies. And we need those movies. We need more of them. And we're going to be going into a lot more detail on some of the bright spots that we just mentioned titles like Smile and the horror genre as a whole, everything, everywhere, all at once, which I think we can all agree is one of the best stories of 2022 at the box office. We'll go through that in a little bit, but let's start, guys, going over the biggest stories, I think, from a business perspective in the industry. I think, Rebecca, since we're the two that mostly focus on the business side of the movie theater world, we have to agree the Regal bankruptcy was not unexpected, but but nevertheless, a major, major story for how we understand Cineworld as the second largest global circuit and all those reverberations across vendors and studios 
that that can mean. It's something that still hasn't been resolved. Well, I feel like all of the top news stories of the year, Sean, you were talking about in terms of box office, you know, we're going to have to kind of wait and see how things shake out. And I feel like that's the way things are with this year's movie stories. You look at the the big business items that have hit and they are things like the Regal bankruptcy, like Amazon's acquisition of GM being another one. And obviously shakeups at Disney and, and Warner. We're not really going to see how that plays out. Definitely, you know, and definitely until next year, maybe beyond. The conclusion of the saga, as you mentioned, Rebecca, is something that we'll have to wait for in 2023 to understand really the fate of the world's second largest exhibition circuit, Cineworld, and its U.S. division, Regal. But let's go over the other big news stories here. Warner Brothers leaving AT&T being part of the Discovery Channel, of all things. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying that sentence. Russ, uh, you've been covering a lot of these Warner Brothers releases, obviously, as you're putting out content around these major studio titles for moviegoers. Warner Brothers has the DC Universe. That's also in transition. How do you think this Discovery Warner Brothers narrative continues to develop next year because this was one of the big sort of shakeups that we saw in the industry a complete abandonment of the streaming first AT&T era going towards a more embracing stance on theatrical but we still have no idea what that's going to look like yeah i mean it's a big question right now there's a lot of things happening there still you know certainly the next big thing to come out of warner discovery is going to be the launch of their new unified streaming service. Basically, they're going to take HBO Max and Discovery Plus, and they're going to mash them together. Nobody, I don't think even probably 98% of people inside the company don't even know what that's going to look like at this point. I know it's a huge priority, but nobody knows anything. So that's a huge question. David Zaslav has stated a commitment to theatrical, but precisely what that means is uncertain. We've seen a real slash and burn approach to cost cutting over there. So we're seeing titles that were planned for streaming get axed. Batgirl is the most obvious. And of course, streaming is not our primary concern here. But when you talk about a company like Warner Discovery, it has to be in the mix because it's a big part of their overall bottom line. Now that said, There are titles that were originally going to be streaming only that have been pushed to theatrical. House Party, the new Evil Dead movie, which was originally going to be a streaming only. It's like, are you guys insane? Why are you, you know, and I think somebody over there maybe saw the performance of Smile and Barbarian and was like, oh, maybe it's dumb to put an Evil Dead movie to streaming only. Let's let that go to theatrical. (laughs) There's a lot of uncertainty. What are they going to do with the Fantastic Beasts series, a marquee series that literally nobody seems to care about at this point? You talk about movies failing to move the needle and, you know, Fantastic Beasts is way up towards the top of that list, whereas a Warner movie like Elvis did spectacularly well. Is that going to affect how they plan movies going into the next five years? The DC question is a big one. They hired James Gunn on the creative side, Peter Safran on the business side to run DC Studios. In the short term, that means a lot of shakeups because those guys seem like they're planning a Marvel-style slate, which is to say they're planning five to 10 years worth of movies, maybe more than that. 
which is what they were doing originally with the DC universe. And that didn't really pan out. Well, you know, the, the thing is they've said they were doing that, but we'll see how long Gunn and Saffron remain in leadership. That's going to be the big question because what was going on with DC was every three years, the leadership kind of changed. It was like, okay, somebody else is really calling the shots and they didn't have a Feige, you know? And the reason is it's really hard to find a Feige. I think hiring James Gunn was super smart. James Gunn is possibly the best hire they could have made for that position. Now, the thing is that, you know, they, in the meantime, The Rock has been jockeying to kind of control DC and he made that play. And part of that was getting Henry Cavill to cameo in Black Adam, getting DC to say like, yeah, we're going to do more Henry Cavill Superman. And James Gunn and Peter Safran very obviously looked at things and were like, look, it's not that Cavill is too old now, but if we're planning movies for 15 years from now, we want a Superman. Is it Henry Cavill? And they don't know yet how long Ezra Miller is going to be in jail. So Let's assume the Flash movie comes out in June of next year, which they continue to say is going to happen. They've got so much money invested in that movie that they almost have to release it. But it's almost certain that Ezra Miller is not going to be the Flash beyond that point. They're asking tough questions, and it seems like they have the guts to come up with some tough answers that they know are going to make fans angry. And hopefully people will stick around and see what they actually do. But we're not going to see any of Gunn and Safran's DC movies until 2024 at the earliest. So what does it mean for 2023? You've got a lame duck DCEU. <laughs> you know, you've got, you've got a Flash movie. You've got Shazam 2. You've got Aquaman. Aquaman previously would have been like, oh, this is probably going to be a bright spot. And it might still be, but everybody's going to go into it knowing that now it's essentially kind of a one-off sequel. Sean, we know that for these big movies to work at a global level, they have to appeal to casual fans. They have to be four-quadrant movies. How do these reboots usually work out at the box office when you have to press the reset button on something like Batman, for example? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I really feel like we're already seeing those growing pains. I know Black Adam, there are several different reasons behind it performing the way it did, but I think by the time it finally released after all of these years and several delays, fandom in DC has just gotten to the point where they already realized... Things are getting rebooted. They're already starting to reboot. We've got multiple Batmans. We've got a Joker that it's its own thing at this point. The entire franchise and I think the fan base has been in a state of limbo for a few years, really ever since Justice League came out and just completely fizzled. And that's been five years now. Disney's another studio that's had uh, executive shakeups over 2022. Nothing as far-ranging as uh, what's been going on with Warner Brothers Discovery. But given that Chapik is out, Iger is back in, kind of seeming to signal an intent to maybe readjust their strategy. There's a lot of issues there. And I think that leads us into the surprises section of our podcast, talking about the most surprising stories that have come out this year. And I think one of the things that none of us were expecting was for Bob Iger to come back at the helm of Disney. Well, for one, how long is this Iger era even going to be? Because he's not like the announcement was kind of like he's back, but he's basically back to oversee a different transition (laughs) than a transition that is different from the one he previously oversaw, which everyone has mutually agreed did not work out very well. So the new Iger era, even from the jump is a big question mark. Cause it's like, Oh, he's, he's in for a year or two and then he's going to pass off to somebody else. So that's a huge thing. 
I think that the billion dollar, one and a half billion dollar Disney Plus loss is really interesting, especially when you talk about Star Wars and you talk about Disney animation and Pixar. Let's focus on a couple of small things. And I'd be really curious to see what Sean has to say here too, which is turning red, going exclusively to Disney Plus and driving driving Disney Plus in a great way. And then Lightyear absolutely bombing. Lightyear not moving the needle at all. In retrospect, it seems very clear that those release strategies should have been flipped. I absolutely agree with you. I think the day that Turning Red was announced as going to streaming, it just felt like a stab in the back for exhibition because theatrical was heading into spring. There was all this optimism that families were going to come back and that would be the kind of movie to do it, which eventually turned out to be true because Sonic the Hedgehog in the spring did really well. I think the rationale for Turning Red was that it was really strongly appealing to mothers and daughters who had been perceived as especially Mother is the most hesitant to still come back after the Omicron wave a year ago, but I do think it would have done really well. And then I also look at what they put on, on streaming that didn't go theatrical. Hocus Pocus 2 could have done really well in the fall with a theatrical release. Even if it was a shortened window, I think there were opportunities there to, whether or not Disney wanted to go full scale back into those types of windows for certain films, they could have at least made them available to theaters more than they did. So that's one of the biggest takeaways from this year for me. And even though nobody expected the Iger news, it just made so much sense after that string of decisions that the studio had made this year. Let's take this transition to really highlight where the industry was in the spring, as you guys mentioned, with that stab in the back. And I think that was how it was taken by exhibition that happened in the spring with Disney scaling back its theatrical releases. Things were really bad for a while. We're forgetting that the only thing we were basically living off of in this industry were Channing Tatum movies <laughs> and like Spider-Man reruns. That was a good chunk of this year was dominated by that. Which is at least a step up from the era of Bruce Willis and Liam Neeson. <laughs> yeah, or like the Goonies you know? every other weekend. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think it was a really difficult start to the year. And that all changed thanks to the patron saint of exhibition Tom Cruise and Top Gun Maverick coming out on Memorial Day weekend. Sean, I remember this happening at CinemaCon when we're together, not having sat through that Top Gun Maverick screening. We both skipped it. And everybody going up to you and saying, <laughs> hey, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a massive film, right? right? You have to upgrade your, your forecast by 100 million. <laughs> we were both taking heat for this. We were both like asking people, hey, guys, calm down, calm down. There's a lot of questions. Lo and behold, we have to say it. You were right. Stan Roskowski, president of Box Office Company, you were right. <laughs> Julian Marcel, you were right. You want to hear it? You were right. Sean, I did it. Now you got to step up. Well, you know what? I'm going to defend this. No. Well, to some, in some respects, <laughs> here's the thing. <laughs> it's not a bad That's thing. That's my number one philosophy. If we're going to be wrong on forecasts, I always want to be wrong on the low end. Because the, the only other version of that is is being wrong on the other end. And I experienced that with Lightyear this year, and I would much rather be wrong on Top Gun. So yeah, plus there were just so many unknowns. I think, I, I don't know if anybody could have ever seen a $700 million run coming, but we weren't anywhere near that either. So absolutely, I think patron saint of cinema is the best way to describe Cruz right now. And he, you know, frankly, he brought back an entire generation of moviegoers that people wondered if they would ever come back. And they did for that movie. At the very least, they came back for that movie. Now, of course, Top Gun Maverick was the number one film of the year. I think, as you mentioned, Sean, no one expected this to do that well. But 
it may not end up being the biggest surprise at the domestic box office of the year. And when we talk about films outperforming their expectations, we all agree, right? Everything, everywhere, all at once, that has to be the bright spot of 2022. Rebecca, this is a movie you particularly like. This has to be among your top movie-going experiences of the year. Oh, definitely. It's it's definitely in my top five for films. I think with this one, you know, Top Gun Maverick, a lot of the appeal for a lot of people was, you know, you want to see it in premium formats. You want to see the best audio, the biggest, you know, the biggest and the best, which kind of necessarily cuts out a lot of cinemas that maybe aren't set up that way, you know, in terms of amenities. I mean, we heard from uh, the panelists in our State of the Art House webinar that took place uh, last month that everything, everywhere, all at once was really like the saving grace for particularly for art house cinemas in 2022. So yeah, I mean, in terms of box office, Sean, I mean, when it hit that first week, how long did it take you to be like, whoa, this is really something that's hitting in a way that we didn't expect because the holdovers, the word of mouth were a huge contributor uh, to box office for it. Yeah, I think, I believe it started in something like 10 theaters or thereabouts and we we usually expect like crazy per theater averages that first week. Right? Yeah, I mean. about fifty thousand, and usually we expect a twenty four movies, which is essentially a brand unto itself. Now they do really well when they start out with that platform, that release strategy, and then they tend to expand and they pull in some more of their fans. But there's a diminishing return at some point because they always appeal to the quote unquote mainstream. However, we want to define that. This movie went beyond what usually we see from a twenty four's releases, and I think what really that really started to stand out to me when it hit 1,200 theaters around its third weekend. Technically, that's wide release, but still not truly nationwide in terms of getting to everybody. And it, it expanded so well from there that I mean, word of mouth just kind of kept building like a snowball. And it was such this unique movie that was emotional and, and funny and and creative and not very mainstream and not I mean, very mainstream. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it could be described as a film that's not particularly accessible. I mean, that's the director of the film, the Daniels. I mean, one of their previous films was about a farting corpse. So I think they tap in to something yeah. that audiences maybe want to see that they didn't know they wanted to see. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, that was definitely. Yeah. So I think right around that time, it became obvious that, wow, this is actually really connecting with people in a way that could keep it around for a while. And that's, that's what happened. And it's great to see because that's, we've had so much bad news on the prestige and art house front here at the end of the year with so many Oscar candidates not performing well, I'm going to continue to point back to everything everywhere all at once as an example of why it can still work. It just comes down to not just timing, but the type of content, the type of movie and what people are in the mood to see right now. And I think we're seeing a sea change there. The other huge surprise at the movies this year, I had no idea what to expect when I walked into RRR. It is probably one of the most surprising movie-watching experiences of my lifetime. I don't think I've ever been talked down to as a viewer that much. I don't think I've seen a, such a condescending film in the way it treats its audience and loved being talked down to as much as I was. What an amazing experience. And that's another film that's uh, in the awards conversation for best song. It deserves, oh, it deserves absolutely. that. Absolutely. Are you kidding me? But... Absolutely. Not to, not to. I've tried those moves, by the way. Uh, I am bad at them. I am not good at this. I tell you, that was my proposal months ago was that 
everybody who wants to compete for Oscars this year puts someone on stage and everybody has to dance Natu Natu and the last person standing wins Best Picture. That seems fair to me. No, I mean, the story of, of our, our, you know, in terms of its theatrical journey, I mean, it really speaks to something that we talk about a lot and that the whole industry talks about a lot, which is that, you know, streaming and theatrical are not necessarily, you know, at loggerheads with one another. I watched it on Netflix, you know, <laughs> and my my wife and I watched it together and we were blown away by it. We absolutely loved it. And I don't think she had much and, you know, she's on top of stuff, but it was a movie that she was like, yeah, I I know people are talking about this, but I don't have any conception of what it really is. And 10 minutes into that movie, we're both like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing. And we have to give a a shout out here. We usually don't do this, but Dylan Marchetti from Variance Films. This is a company that has put out really hard to market movies theatrically and done fantastically well with them. They helped put out Drive My Car last year in a campaign that ended up landing it a Best Picture nomination. When's the last time you saw that happen? A three-hour-long Japanese art house film. This year, they're taking an even tougher movie, Eo, about a donkey. The donkey doesn't even talk. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. Uh, they're taking Eo out of the festival scene and into multiplexes. Not every multiplex, but it's getting a good amount of screens, more than you would ever expect for an art house donkey movie. And they were also responsible for this multiplex success of a Telugu language film that picked up a wider audience through Netflix at home and in its re-release even caught IMAX PLF screens. Sean, how much of an outlier is this to any sort of model you've seen in the last 15 years in exhibition? Yeah, it's a unique model and I think we've certainly seen examples of that. We've had a number of Imports from India have done really well in recent years, and they've I think they've continued to build momentum as you know as more of that culture is prominent here in the, in the states. And the domestic market is now tracking these films, you know, box office wise, far more often than I think we're we used to see just even re- in recent years. So it's it's certainly something I think we're just watching kind of unfold before our eyes. Not dissimilar from how anime has really exploded in recent years. It's kind of great to see multicultural blockbusters, or if they're not blockbusters, just you know, pop culture hits that we don't aren't really exposed to every day here. And it's honestly, it's going to be an increasingly important part of the market, I think. I think a lot of these imports, for lack of a better word, anime titles, the bigger ones, a lot of Indian titles are serving some of that purpose that the old studio mid-budget movie no longer exists to serve, at least theatrically. And so, yeah, it's awesome to see some of the movies, like the anime movies that have been breakout hits. Uh, Dragon Ball Super this year was huge, like did really, really well in limited release. And you're seeing exhibitors respond. You're seeing more bookings. You're seeing longer bookings. You know, a lot of these Indian movies you talk about, chains are playing these movies constantly. And it's kind of amazing how many come to theaters, but a lot of them are limited release. They're very kind of special event. Maybe they're on screens for a day. Maybe they're on screens for four days. They don't play very long. RRR is absolutely an outlier because it attracted a crossover audience that previously has not really been coming out to these movies. Does RRR help change anything? Maybe a little bit, but if nothing else, even without RRR, that market is growing and exhibitors are responding because they see the audience is showing up. And it's a segment that, like Sean, I'd love to see that really expand over the next couple of years. 
And I think that sentiment was one of the driving forces behind another one of the big surprises of this year in theatrical exhibition, the launch of National Cinema Day, a coordinated campaign of a national discount day at the movies. We were able to see it in September in, I think, what we can look back as a strong success during a period in the market where there weren't that many new releases. Rebecca, what was your reaction to the launch of National Cinema Day, which was really spearheaded by Jackie Brenneman and the NATO Cinema Foundation? Yeah, I think it was a huge success. 30,000 screens participated, 8.1 million people came out. And we saw with films like, say, DC League of Super Pets, Cinema Day was a really good opportunity to bring in families to family titles that we definitely know have been struggling elsewhere on the calendar this year. You know, I, I think it is a reflection of, Russ, what you were talking about with RRR, kind of willingness with RRR on the programming side and here on, you know, with Cinema Day, more on the operations side of things, but the willingness to experiment in this particular case, experiment with dynamic pricing and discounted pricing models, which is something that, you know, we've seen individual chains do it. But until NATO kind of pushed this through, it, it was never something that we saw studios and chains, you know, nationwide all come together with, and it worked. Sean, from a box office level, it might not have moved the needle too much on a dollar gross level, but in admissions, looking at the numbers that Rebecca cited, we saw that it was a a positive impact. How do you think the market reacted to this coming when it did in September during a lull of new releases? Yeah, it was welcome. And it was really at that point on the calendar when everybody was bracing for just this immediate downturn in the fall after such a decent summer and there wasn't going to be a lot of new content coming for the next few months. And that weekend and specifically that day brought out over 8 million moviegoers. And, you know, okay, we're talking about $3 per ticket. So obviously that's factoring into a lot of the decision, but just for sheer analytics purposes, that would translate to at normal ticket price, roughly $80 million. So you're talking about the number of people who went to the theaters that day is virtually equivalent to the number of people that would go to see a Marvel movie on opening day. And even though the price is lower and that's a decision factor, there were no new movies coming out. It was re-releases. It was Jaws. It was No Way Home after nine months and all of the summer holdovers. So it really spoke to the interest, I think, for people to come back. And that's where we're back at now, because I think like anything else, I think movie going begets movie going and we get some momentum like we had in the summer. And then we have these pauses. And that's been the issue that as an industry, we keep discussing Every time we have some success, we run out of movies to talk about or movies that are being released in theaters. So we kind of wait for that next point on the calendar where we can look at it and say, okay, this is where things start to even out and steady out again. And people will come back and not forget that they love going to the movies. And that happened in September as well. As you know, Sean, there was another lull. But the only thing that really helped out the market between mid-September and mid-November were horror movies. This is a genre that traditionally has always succeeded when there have been downturns at the box office. We saw it again this year. The horror genre is probably one of the most pleasant surprises in theatrical exhibition domestically this year. Now, Russ, you're a big fan of the genre. There were a number of titles that came out that really helped push the vibrancy of horror in theaters. I want to start by talking about the original movies that came out. Movies like Ty West's X and his subsequent prequel, Pearl, 
for me, among the best movies of the year, among the top 20 for sure, movies like Smile, you mentioned that, Rebecca, coming over from Paramount. You had Barbarian from 20th Century Studios. Barbarian is a really fantastic topic because, you know, it's a movie that if you read interviews with uh, Zach Kreger, the writer-director, you know, who's been around, it's not like he's a new guy, but he is a new feature director. And he's like, nobody wanted to make this movie. And I don't know if it was Steve Aspel at, at 20th Century Studios who stepped in and kind of helped get it made. They packaged it somehow and it worked. And it got to theaters, you know, it's a movie that like, it's a movie, Barbarian, you watch Barbarian, there's wild shit in that movie that is the sort of stuff that doesn't typically get the major studio label at this point, especially when there are, you know, when there's IFC Midnight, A24, all the movies that go to Shudder, you know, a lot of stuff. There's, there's a great horror scene right now. There are more ways than ever to get your horror film seen and to let it build at least a small audience. But then Barbarian comes out and Barbarian, I think, you know, again, it's that surprise factor. It's that thing where, Audiences maybe hoped that they were going to get something and the movie delivers. It delivers in a very direct and unpretentious way. You have Scream from Paramount that did really well in January, not uh, typically a month that's known for its box office success, but there was that few months in there where it was just like Paramount movies. Scream, Scream, by the way, which did well enough that they turned around and got that sequel going literally the Monday after and you know scream six comes out in March and it's like, that's a nice quick turnaround for, you know, a franchise that had been for very good reasons, cut dormant theatrically following the passing of Wes Craven, but they found a team to move it forward, which clearly worked. And it's nice to see Paramount just being like, okay, yep, let's keep this rolling. Let's go again. So we do have to nitpick a little here if we're talking about horror films having being a real success story for the box office for this year. There are also horror films that didn't go to cinemas that I think probably Pray. should have. I mean, Prey. Prey would have looked gorgeous. Absolutely. And I think this is a good transition to the disappointments part of the episode <laughs> because those were the two big disappointments I had this year, guys. Prey and Hellraiser, two movies that were great on streaming. Prey would have made my top 10 list had it gone to theaters. I wish I would have seen Prey on the big screen. Or at least had the option to do so. You wanted the option. Exactly. At <laughs> least give moviegoers the chance to do so. Sean, I know you usually just focus on the things that people pay money to go see in theaters. So we're <laughs> going to be a bit unfair with you right now. What impact do you think titles like Prey and Hellraiser could have had theatrically, knowing that the genre was doing so well, and knowing that these two movies that were streaming only were among the best received movies of the year. I definitely think there could have been some impact, you know, especially Prey with with how strong its reception has been. If we look at how much horror films have contributed to the box office this year, and if you count Nope, which just for the sake of the argument, we will, because it increases the numbers here. Well, they, they, leading in leading into Nope, there was every reason to expect that it was at least kind of horror adjacent, which I think yes. it is. Yeah. Five minutes into Nope you know, with that killer yeah. monkey, I thought it was a horror movie, okay? That, those are the most frightening five minutes in a theater I spent this year. Sci-fi horror. Sci-fi horror. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I totally. think so. I think a lot of people probably went into it that way. Virtually all sci-fi is horror in some way. Anyway, different conversation. But yeah, I mean, Nope (laughs) is at the very least. It's coming from a filmmaker whose two previous movies were horror. It's a genre movie. I think it counts. Yeah, I think so. And that plays into, you know, as well as horror did this year, it did that well through a lot of releases. It wasn't just one. We didn't have it released this year. And Halloween 
we had a Halloween movie, but it wasn't near the level it was in 2018. We haven't talked about it yet in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't talked about it this episode in terms of successes. So yeah, we just, that's a good point, Sean. We just need that volume so that the market can absorb the odd disappointment where we didn't see that with family titles where it feel like it was just, you know, one family movie at a time. And if that one didn't work, then, well, we saw that a lot of them didn't work. Speaking of disappointments for the year, I think that the the family genre has to be counted on that list. Yeah. I mean, we haven't seen Puss in Boots 2 yet. And I actually want to flip, well, no, we won't throw it in the middle of the family movies because I'm not going to talk about Terrifier 2 as a family movie. But I feel like (laughs) if we're going to talk about the general uplift of horror and then the connection to that mid and specialty market, Terrifier 2 is unqualified success. You know, it's a small movie, came out of nowhere for most people like that. You know, it's a sequel. But it's a sequel to a movie that most people probably did not see theatrically. And it's a niche title that was selling out screenings multiple weekends in a row. You know, on its own small level, it did extremely well. Well, I think, I mean, we can talk about Lightyear as kind of a terrifier, too, for the Ouch. box office. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have to identify that. Greenlee is maybe the one big flop of the year. I hate using the word flop. But, Sean, I mean, how do we quantify that failure of light here at the box office in relation to the struggles that family movies had at large. Yeah. I mean, really the easiest, simplest way to look at it is traditionally every summer, there are two big animated movies on average, and you get those earning two to 300, if not $400 million. And that was the expectation of Lightyear because it was that Toy Story franchise. It was that IP that really didn't take into consideration that audiences just weren't interested in seeing a solo origin story about a character who's really tangentially related to the character that they know of Tim Allen lore in the Toy Story movies. And it wasn't marketed as well as it could have been. I think if if they had really positioned it as this is the movie that Andy saw in Toy Story that made him fall in love with the character, maybe that would have helped. Who knows? I don't know. But you're talking a couple of hundred million dollars just on the domestic side that was lost by that film's underperformance. I mean, I'll stand by Lightyear being a good concept. I see why they went with it. I see why they greenlit it. I don't know that the movie paid off the concept in a way that it could or should have, but it's too bad because it's a neat, it's a neat idea. Like, sure. Okay. Let's do this. But yeah, it's, it didn't click with anybody. Nobody saw a reason to see them. But even a title like, I mean, how do you feel about the performance of Minions 2? I honestly was a little surprised by it. I expected there to be some drop off there because I think to me, I would look at that going into it. It was the fifth Despicable Me movie, not the second Minions movie, but how people actually treated it was it was the second Minions movie. And I think there was a freshness to it still. I think You know, this might be going out on a limb, but I I really think Illumination has hit that point where they might be on equal terms, if not a stronger draw with families than Pixar. I agree with that completely. I don't think that's going out on a limb. It's odd to say it. Yeah. I think that's absolutely correct. And the Gentle Minions trend, you know, we've talked about that a few times. I can't not mention (laughs) that. That probably helped. But it speaks to that appeal to the teenage age nowadays. And that's one reason I'm really bullish on Mario next year. But we'll discuss that in the next episode. (laughs) And we'll be going over all of those 2023 releases in uh, next week's episode of the Box Office Podcast when we preview the 2023 box office. Let's keep on going here with some of the biggest disappointments we had in theatrical exhibition this year. And we do have to say it, even though I think everyone on this podcast was on the same page about it. The Netflix promise of going theatrical that a lot of super geniuses told us would save movie theaters 
guess what? It happened. It didn't pan out. Turns out Netflix was in it for themselves the whole time. As we'd been Who saying. would have guessed? I, saying, I think we all <laughs> said that. <laughs> yeah. Like. I think we all made that point over and over the again. The biggest missed opportunity of the year is Netflix taking the Knives Out sequel, Glass Onion, and giving it, let's say, a paltry bit of support would be overstating it. Sean, just how much money did Netflix leave on the table when they just gave this Glass Onion film, what was it, four days in the box office? about 600 screens. What was the missed opportunity in terms of dollars here? Uh, You know, I mean, just considering what it did from those six or 700 theaters, I think there's no question it could have been a $100 million domestic earner, probably much higher. There was such, I think there was so much goodwill from that first film three years ago heading into this. And, you know, I, I tend, I have to be neutral and objective during the day job part of this. But the positive part of me was like, hey, I get to see Glass Onion in a theater. This is a positive step forward. <laughs> but you guys are also right. They did leave a lot of money on the table. And yeah. I'm hopeful that maybe this awakens the company to doing this more often. Whether or not that actually happens, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, we, we're talking about Netflix leaving money on the table. Should we reframe the question <laughs> to how much money did Lionsgate leave on the table by letting these movies go to Netflix in the first place. How did that happen? How? I mean, obviously it happened because Netflix just poured buckets of cash onto Ron Bergman and Ryan Johnson's table. But oh, fair like point. Lionsgate, geez, y'all, come oh, on. My yeah. God. Absolutely. How did you do this? Absolutely. And it, yeah, and it's a big transition period for Lionsgate as they're trying to figure out how to survive as a mid-major studio, what's going to happen with her ownership of stars the cable channel that isn't HBO or Showtime. It's the other one. I would actually argue that it's been a transitional point for Lionsgate for the past like 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, we all thought they were going to go all in on franchises when they were making buckets of money with the Hunger Games franchise. At that point, with between that and Twilight, it felt almost disingenuous yeah. at a certain point to refer to it as an independent Studio. No, they were, they were basically a major. They were punching above their weight for the 2010s. We started this part of the conversation by saying that Netflix and theatrical was one of the biggest disappointments of the year. It transitioned with another topic, which was Lionsgate. We have to look at their output as disappointing this year. And keeping in the theme of this conversation of what are you doing, we have to talk about Apple. Coming off of the Best Picture Oscar last year with CODA, a movie that they did all they could so people wouldn't see in theaters. They followed that up. I can name two Apple releases this year. I don't know if you guys can name any additional ones. It was something called Cha-Cha Real Smooth that was out at Sundance. And then the star of the moment, Will Smith in Emancipation. I don't think anyone has ever even heard of these movies. I will add the third movie, and that's Spirited, because it's my favorite Christmas movie of the year. And that was I, Apple, I, I thought it was a TV show. Are you serious? No, it's, that was it's a movie? an Apple movie. I, yeah, dude, I thought it was like an Apple TV TV show. I thought it was like oh, a Ted no. Lasso thing. <laughs> no, well, there you go. Uh, yeah, Will Ferrell, Ryan Reynolds. It's I loved it, and they've done some screenings. In fact, I think they did a rollout karaoke version last week because the musical aspect of it is getting really strong reviews. But that's the kind of movie that again, would have done great with a theatrical window. I mean, how many times do we have to really say that for these movies? I don't even know who works there. 
honestly, I can't name you two Apple executives on the cinema <laughs> division. I don't know who to email when I need information from them. I have to go through sources and exhibition. The Apple series Severance is incredible. That show is so good. And my wife and I just went like really in on Severance and it went from like, oh yeah, we should watch this. Let's let's do the trial of Apple TV to watch this. And we did. And it went from like, okay, let's watch an episode to see if we like it to how many episodes of this can we fit in tonight? Which is to say that for a week we were deep in the Apple, like we were going to Apple immediately. And I still couldn't tell you what movies they have aside from Emancipation, which was kind of getting front and center and Spirited also getting a lot of marketing play there. But it's like, I've been staring at Apple's, you know, UX for the last seven days. And (laughs) I'm with you guys. I'm like, I don't know what they're doing as far as movies goes. It's just crazy to talk about a company like Apple being so bad at something. They are terrible at releasing movies, even within their own streaming platform. I, I, I don't know what they're thinking over there. It's kind of like they're not a movie studio. Yeah. It's almost <laughs> like that. They're you know? in the selling phones business. Absolutely. Well, I think yeah. that uh, wraps up our series of disappointments here in 2022. But guys, let's finish our last couple of minutes here on a positive note, because it's the new year. We have to ring in the new year by focusing on the positive. I wanted to close up this conversation, this episode this week, by talking about our favorite movie-going moments, memories, first watch, your best experience going to the cinema in 2022. Sean, let's start with you. You know, I've been thinking about this, and I look at, in terms of movies, Top Gun Maverick is going to be really high up there. But in terms of a moment, aside from hearing grown men cry at the end of that movie, myself may or may not having been one of them, I will not confirm or deny that, Black Panther, at the very beginning, for anybody who's seen it, like especially if you're a Marvel fan, usually they roll that Marvel credit logo, and it's sometimes at the beginning of the movie, sometimes it comes after an opening prologue or a scene. It was the latter, in this case, with Wakanda Forever, after a very emotional beginning to the film, and it was just dead silent, which I've never heard in a theater for a Marvel movie before. There's always some chanting or some clapping, just you know, general enthusiasm from fans. It was just a complete memorial moment when that Marvel logo with Chadwick Boseman's face over every single inch of it rolled. It really stood out, regardless of how anyway it feels about the movie. It was just really kind of one of those theatrical moments that I won't forget for a long time. Rebecca, how about you? What was your movie-going moment or memories of 2022? We've spoken about it already. RRR, not knowing what to expect, to go into one of those first, you know, the RR, the encore RRR, and just being gobsmacked and then seeing it in theaters again with my boyfriend and seeing it in a crowd where like some people have seen it and you can tell the people who've already seen it are kind of watching for the reactions of the people who hasn't seen it. That was special as hell. Though outside of that, I will say seeing the Alamo uh, Drafthouse screen 2001 on 70 millimeter. And that was like, that's a big deal movie for me. And just hearing the soundtrack, like I, I feel like I'd never seen it before, honestly. So those are those are my top two. Russ, on your end, we've mentioned this before, it's hard for you to get out in theaters. You're in that demographic of having a young kid at home. You've got to get babysitter. You have to find the time. What were you able to catch? We'll make an exception. If you were able to catch something at home, what's your 2022 and movie going? Well, look, I mean, my best theatrical experience this year was Jackass 4, <laughs> Jackass Forever, because it was my first movie back since, you know, March of 2020. And it was a 
massively entertaining and emotional experience. My wife and I went and we both loved it. And, you know, and it's great to laugh your ass off through a thing and then just be kind of like recounting your, you know, your previous favorite jackass experiences in the car ride on the way home. It was a great time. And it was like, oh yeah, this is fun. I really like doing this. On my end, I think I ended up crying a couple of times at the movie theater. I'm not afraid to admit that. Going to the movies alone, as I often watch movies, I'll go to a theater by myself, either a press screening or a commercial screening. I totally teared up during The Worst Person in the World from Joachim Trier. That was by far, I think, the my, my favorite movie of the year in 2022, released in 2022, though I saw that in 2021 at the New York Film Festival. Again, was a complete waterworks during uh, After Sun, the debut feature from Charlotte Wells. Incredible movie about a father-daughter relationship. So yeah, there were a couple of really strong, emotional, movie-going moments for me at the movies. And then there were also the what the heck am I watching? I don't really understand this level of spectacle. We mentioned RRR. We've talked about Top Gun Maverick, which was just incredible to see on the big screen. And then I can't forget something like The Northman. I don't know if you guys caught Robert Eggers' The Northman when it was released in April. I mean, we all know what we're walking into with one of his movies, but man, there's a lot of butt in that movie. There's just butts going everywhere. I'm going to have to put that on my catch-up list. (laughs) There's a naked sword fight on a volcano, and then there's unicorns. I mean, really, if you're a fan of of seeing butts, naked sword fights on volcanoes and and livestock, does Robert Eggers have a release for you? Uh, These were movies that I paid my ticket, and I was just completely, you know, taken aback by everything that I was exposed to on screen. So it was a great year for me in both emotional movie-going trips and just complete spectacle like cinematic experiences in 2022. We hope there's more in 2023. And we'll talk about the ones we're looking forward to in 2023 in next week's episode. Rebecca, Sean, Russ, thanks again for joining us in this annual recap of everything going on in theatrical exhibition in 2022. The biggest stories, surprises, disappointments, and our favorite movie-going moments of the year. Tune in next week for our 2023 preview The Box Office Podcast is produced by The Box Office Company in collaboration with Box Office Pro and Record Edit Podcast. Subscribe, share, like, tell people to download what we do. It's the easiest way for us to keep on doing it. And we'll see you again next year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.